it was kind of twilight and the lake was glowing with these colors of the sunset and it was just such a beautiful scene and I remember there kind of being a slight breeze coming off the lake and there was just no one around it maybe was Sunday night and the weekend crowds were gone and I felt really isolated there and I was sprawled out on the granite slabs and I took off my shoes and I was watching the sun fade and all of the sudden I could hear footsteps coming up behind me. That's Mary Kokenauer, everybody. And I'm your host, Shanti. And this is the Out and Back podcast presented by Guy GPS. Mary is our Out and Back podcast producer. She's also a writer and editor at Gaia GPS. Now, when Mary's not in the office working on the podcast, Mary guides for Andrew Skirka adventures all over the West in beautiful and wild places like Rocky Mountain National Park, Yosemite, and Alaska. We're going to try something a little different with our episode this week. Instead of an interview, Mary's going to straight up tell us a story about her early days as a wilderness ranger in the Lake Tahoe Basin and how she learned to backpack solo. She talks about how she overcame her fear of spending the night all alone in the woods and how she eventually learned to love solo backpacking. Until, one day, she discovered that she wasn't really alone after all. A man had been stalking her for almost an entire summer. This story, when I listened to it, had me on the edge of my seat. It's gripping, and it's inspirational. And Mary also tells us how this frightening experience that she had helped her later in her career when she worked as a prosecutor of violent crimes. In the end, this story reminds me that Sometimes you have to face your fear head on to finally overcome it. So before we dive into this episode, I want to let you know that Gaia GPS is offering up to 50% off to podcast listeners. Simply go to GaiaGPS.com slash podcast, that's G-A-I-A-GPS.com slash podcast, to tap into this discount. I actually know for a fact that Mary uses Gaia GPS in all her backcountry travels, and she was actually using it just last week when she was navigating her way through the Wind River High Route. And she also is using it when she's guiding clients on the Yosemite High Route next week. And if that's not enough of an endorsement, I actually was using Gaia GPS just this past weekend. I was hiking a good stretch of the Uinta Highline Trail with Real Hiking Viking, and Gaia GPS, using the Nat Geo Trails Illustrated Maps, kept us on track the entire way. So don't wait. You're going to want to check it out yourself. Go to GaiaGPS.com slash podcast to get your discounted membership. Now, let's dive into this story with Mary. All right, I'll get started. You ready for this? I didn't grow up in an outdoor family. I grew up in the greater Detroit area. My parents didn't hike or they didn't camp. They were basically city folks. My dad, he was a mailman and he worked, I don't know, two, two jobs, sometimes three jobs on the weekends just to make ends meet. And my mom worked part-time as a record clerk in a hospital. And on weekends, she would belly dance in the clubs in downtown Detroit. And that's how we made our, our money. And there just wasn't a lot of time for... Um, vacations, especially like camping or or uh, hiking on the weekends. It was all basically work um, just to pay the bills. And then eventually my family split and I lived with my mother and she moved us out to these suburbs um, to be closer to a boyfriend. And, you know, I was pretty out of place. I was in seventh grade. 
Um, I didn't have the right clothes. I didn't listen to the right music. Um, this was where all the auto industry executives lived. Uh, professional sports families, you know, like the quarterback for the Lions. His kids went to school with me. It was all the kind of affluent uh, neighborhood of outer Detroit. And here I was, and we lived in this tiny apartment. And it was it was basically uh, the low-income housing of that neighborhood, of that area. It was really hard for me to make friends. I remember some kids were not even allowed to hang out with me because I lived in these apartments. But the cool thing was these apartments were right next to the woods. And there was a creek running through these woods. And soon enough, I found myself spending all my time exploring this little forest right next to these junky apartments. And on the weekends, I would be floating the, the river and the inner tube and that I would get from behind the tire store. And one of my best friends from my old neighborhood would come out and visit me on the weekends. And I'd drag her along on all these adventures. And we'd have so much fun. And I just couldn't get enough. It was just like a, a place where I felt completely whole out there in, in the outside. And I was addicted. And soon enough, I started babysitting for this family. And, and they had more money than we did, obviously. And they would pay me to come over and watch their kids. And then they would invite me to go up north and go skiing with them. And they taught me to ski. I just love this freedom of being outside. It was the kind of freedom I couldn't get anywhere else. And by the time I hit high school, all I could think about was getting outside. And when my older sister, she's quite a bit older than me, she announced that she and her husband, they were going to quit their jobs and they were going to move to Southern California. I like jumped at this opportunity to go with them. And the three of us, we moved out there in their Dodge Omni car. I'm, I'm surprised it even made it out there. This two-door car. And we found ourselves in Southern California without any place to live. And the three of us, plus a big giant yellow lab, we all lived in this car for more than a month. Eventually, they found a place to live and they got jobs. And I enrolled myself in my senior year in high school. But I realized I really didn't fit in there either. I mean, I took advantage of, of being in Southern California. I saved up my money and I took a sailing lessons and I became certified in scuba diving and enjoyed all the mountains around Southern California, including Big Bear and the Southern Sierra. And I was just enamored with, with the variety that California offered as far as outdoor adventures. But... You know, college was kind of out of reach for me financially. I didn't know where I was going to be able to live after I graduated high school. Um, so I asked my sister, you know, would you drop me off at Lake Tahoe, which was about an eight-hour drive north. And, and she was kind of confused. She was like, Lake Tahoe, why? Why would you go there? And I remember opening up this magazine, it was probably skiing magazine, and there was a big advertisement with the, these people skiing down in this powder, and there was this 
big giant lake sprawled out in front of them. And it just looks so beautiful to me. And I thought I really need to go there. And to my surprise, she said, okay, I'll take you there on a Labor Day weekend. She and her husband drove me up there and I had nothing with me but this bag of clothes, a sleeping bag and skis and an alarm clock. I didn't have a car. It was before cell phones and I did not even have a bike to get around town. And I didn't have a lot of money either. And the first thing I did was I signed up for a EMT first aid class at the community college. And then that fall, I got hired onto ski patrol. And it was my first job out of high school. I was 17 years old and I was getting paid to ski. I mean, I lost my mind. I was like living the dream. I was in Tahoe. I was skiing on ski patrol, meaning I was skiing all day long, getting paid minimum wage, but that didn't matter because I was, I was doing what, what I really wanted to do was be outside. And, you know, summer came and I tried out a lot of different summertime jobs, um, The first job I had, I was guiding as a river guide in the Grand Canyon, which is another dream job. I thought that was amazing. I did that for a while, but I really, really wanted to be back in Tahoe. I just knew that was a place that I wanted to spend the summer. I really missed the mountains when I was on the river. I really missed being in the mountains. I just kept applying for this, this dream job that I wanted. And uh, I went through the application process and maybe got turned down one season. And then I tried again. And I finally got this job with the U.S. Forest Service as a wilderness ranger in the, in the Desolation Wilderness at Lake Tahoe Basin, which is this beautiful stretch of wilderness area, protected wilderness area that spans the western shore of Lake Tahoe all the way up and over the Sierra Crest. I I got this job and it was the dream job. I mean, I could not believe that I was gonna be paid to backpack in Desolation Wilderness all summer long for months on end through these lakes, pristine, beautiful lakes and these granite basins and these tall old growth forests with Jeffrey Pines and Douglas Firs and just just the beauty of it with cascading waterfalls and the beauty of it was captivating to me. But there was one major problem. I had never backpacked solo in my life. And here I was maybe like 20, I was like 21, 22 years old and I had not been backpacking by myself at ever. And somehow in my mind, I thought, well, this is the measure of a true outdoors woman is can she backpack by herself and be and exist in these spaces alone? And yet I was terrified too. And I totally remember my first night out there as a ranger. I had my little uniform on and I had 
you know, my drab olive outfit and my giant pack was full of too many things. It probably weighed 60 pounds and I'm not even exaggerating because I had like an extra battery for my radio. Um, I had, you know, big first aid kit. I had a ton of clothes, which I didn't need to be carrying, but you know, I was not as skilled as I am now, I guess I would say. And I was learning how to do this. And I remember walking in on that trail and it's just so beautiful up in that area, especially in Meeks Bay. And I was walking on the sandy trail, huge old growth trees all around me and ferns carpeting the, the forest floor. And you go into this canyon up there and it's just a chain of lakes, just one lake after the other, separated by small sections of the river in there. It was all fine when I was hiking during the day and I was just thinking about how is this going to be when the sun finally drops and I'm out here by myself camping alone. And I just kept walking and I kept walking all that whole day because honestly, I was avoiding setting up camp by myself. And then it started to get dark and I started to think, well, I'm going to have to do this. I can't keep avoiding this because it's going to be nighttime pretty soon. And would I camp with other people at the lakes? I wasn't sure. I was kind of scoping it out. And I didn't see any friendly looking parties at the lake. Um, and it was also midweek. And so the rest of the canyon just felt eerily empty. There was just not a lot of campers back there. It was just this one party and me in this canyon. And so I kept walking. I walked to the head of the canyon I basically camped on top of these ledges and I, I realized that as beautiful as this was, this canyon was probably the worst place to start my solo camping career. And that's because this whole canyon being behind this ridge from the from Lake Tahoe, there was absolutely no radio reception in the whole canyon. So <laughs> if I needed help or anything like that, I couldn't hit the repeater. And plus I knew that this this camp was just teeming with bears. Um, it was known for having bears that would come down to the lake and you know, ravage all the garbage cans and all the neighborhoods down at the lake shore and then come up in the day and, and hang out in this Meeks Bay area. And so here I was with no radio reception, um, camping in, in the backcountry with no one around. Um, but I did it. I did it. I went to bed that night. I didn't get a lot of sleep. And I remember waking up the next morning feeling pretty empowered. I was empowered. I made it that night. And so I went the next night. And I, the nights build into weeks and months. And I was starting to get really, really, really comfortable with solo backpacking. Because that was my job. I went around the wilderness. I checked uh, visitor permits, and I talked with all the hikers um, who were back in the wilderness for the weekend, backpackers. Um, I cleaned up fire rings. I picked up garbage. I even helped with search and rescue. I remember there were a lot of people back there. For instance, with search and rescue, one time I was hiking around the Eagle Canyon area, and somebody came running up to me, and they said, oh my gosh, there's a guy at the backside of the lake. I kind of went around the lake. There's a trail around the backside until you hit these giant boulders. And I started 
um, going in between the boulders and getting to him. And I found him and he sure enough had like a compound fracture of his lower leg and could not walk. And I called in the search and rescue. I mean, I would probably get calls like that once every few months um, or somebody would be lost and they got separated from their party. And I would be up at night by myself, walking around the wilderness, looking for this lost person. I remember one time I, it was two in the morning, I was looking for a, a fellow who got separated from his party and I happened upon Dick's Lake and I looked down and there was this man sleeping in a tree well dressed in day clothes. And I said, are you David? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, well, everybody is looking for you. He said, well, I got lost, separated from my group. And, you know, I was able to reconnect him with the rest of his group down at the trailhead, meaning we had to walk the five miles out that, that night in the dark. Um, there were just a lot of great stories like that. Um, and of course, some tragic ones too with people who had actually died in the wilderness. And I had experienced that as well because um, the wilderness isn't always a friendly place. Just half that summer, I became, you know, a resident of Desolation Wilderness. And one day I was hiking out of the wilderness to go have some days off. And I was coming out of the Eagle Falls trailhead. And I stopped by this popular climbing crag on the way out of the wilderness. It's called 90 Foot Wall. Um, it's super popular because it's like, a 10 minute walk from the trailhead. And it has, I don't know, a, a dozen roots on this crag that is 90 feet tall. And you can walk to the top. So it's easily top rope and you just get crowds of people there um, climbing. And it's, it's kind of a scene. And so I usually would stop by there and pick up as much garbage as I could from the um, crag itself. And this one day I was at the 90 foot wall and there were a whole bunch of people there, but one man in particular kind of came up to me and started talking to me and he was really friendly and he introduced himself and his name was Carl. And he was this skinny climber as climbers often are. Um, he had shoulder length, sun bleached, light brown hair. And he seemed a little bit older than me cause his skin was really leathery kind of looked like he had been outside for decades and he was talking about where he had been climbing and it was all the usual places like Donner Summit he had spent some time in Yosemite Valley climbing there and there was nothing really unusual about him at all um, he just looked like all the other climbers out there and it was interesting because it was the first time I had met Carl and it turns out that summer I would meet Carl over and over again in the most unusual places. The next time I met Carl, I was walking in that same canyon out of Meeks Bay where I'd spent my first night solo backpacking and Carl was coming out of that area. Um, and he was kind of at a 
a fast pace walking down that canyon. And curiously, he had all of his climbing gear with him. And, and there's really no climbing in this area at all. It's all this forested uh, canyon and he wasn't wearing a shirt and he had his climbing rope hanging off of his shoulder. And I was just kind of like, hmm, this is interesting. And we chatted for a while and he had this story that he'd been climbing up on the pass, on Phipps Pass. And I thought, oh, that could be plausible. Then he mentioned some bear with three cubs way up the canyon and he told me to be careful. And that was it. It was just, I saw Carl. I'd met him a few weeks earlier. Well, a few weeks after that, I was on my days off and I live square in the middle of South Lake Tahoe in this tiny little summer cabin neighborhood. And I was at home and I remember I was strapping kayaks onto the top of my car because I was going to go kayaking with my friends. And I looked up and I saw this car, a maroon, kind of like an older maroon um, big sedan, like a almost like an Impala or an Cutlass or something like that from that was probably from the 70s and it looked a little beat up. I saw it coming down the street, kind of driving slowly. And as it got closer, I noticed Carl was driving that car and he pulled up right in front of my house and he said hi. And I was kind of taken aback. And I, I said, what are you doing in here, Carl? And he, he had a story about how he was looking for his friend's house on the next street over. And I, and I thought it was weird, but, but it seemed plausible to me. So, and he was friendly. He just said hi to me, and I said hi to him, and he went on his way. On my next four days in the wilderness, I went to my favorite camp. By this time, I had become so familiar with the with the area. I had my favorite lakes for swimming. I had shortcuts that I would take off trail that would connect me to different areas. I would climb obscure peaks. Just I'd summit those just to get away from the crowds. And I had these few select campsites that I really, really loved. Um, there was one particular campsite I loved more than any other, and it was at the north end of Lake Aloha. Uh, near Mosquito Pass, and it was just spectacular. And if you've ever been to Lake Aloha, you know it sits in this giant, wide-open granite basin. It's a huge, crystal-clear lake with these big granite slabs pouring off its shores. It has the bluest water. It's so clean and clear, and you can look down through the water and see the bottom of the lake. There are these kind of small groupings of western white pines all on the lake shore. And I picked one of those on the north side. And you, I would camp in this area, like up above the trail, so I could see people going down below me. And that made me feel safe. And it was up against these cliffs, or these ledges. So I didn't feel like anybody could camp behind me. And I had really good visibility from this area. And that's where I had my camp. And I would go there as much as I could. I would camp there more than any other camp in the wilderness. Um, I'd stay there for several days at a time. I would go there and set up my camp and I would day hike from there and patrol the wilderness and come back to that same camp over and over. And I remember one day, and it was probably like the week or two after I'd seen Carl at my house in his car, 
um, I went on this long 20 mile day hike from this camp that I had. Uh, I left my tent set up there and I left my clothes inside the tent, nothing of value, just, just the things I didn't want to take with me. And I did this day hike and I showed up there late, late in the day. And I came back and I noticed that all my underwear was missing from the camp. And I just didn't know what to think. I was, I was scared. And yet I looked around and I did not see anybody anywhere near me. And I tried to reason through this and I just didn't know what was going on. There was nobody around. I had left my camp for the day and I, I went in there. Everything was left as I had left it, except my underwear was gone. I don't know. I just, I tried to reason through it. I didn't really know what to do. Um, I think I slept with my radio on and close by me. I put my headlamp near me. I had my shovel. As you know, rangers carry these big shovels in case they need to put out a forest fire or clean up a fire pit. I had my shovel. I, I, I often viewed that as a weapon, so I would carry it right next to me. But nothing happened. I mean, nothing came of it. My underwear was gone and everything else seemed to be normal. And so I just continued on with my season, camping in various spots. Um, I kind of avoided that one favorite spot for a number of weeks, and I spent some time on the other side of Dick's Pass, kind of camping in some obscure places just to make myself feel safe. And when I built my confidence back up, I went back to my favorite camp, that one at Lake Aloha. And I was there for several days and it was late summer and it was kind of like when you can feel the crispness of the air starting to build at night, you know, like fall was coming on. And I was there for several days and something just felt off during this tour I was on. And I remember I was sitting on the slabs right at my camp on those granite slabs And the sun was setting just behind Pyramid Peak. And it was still light out. It was kind of twilight. And the lake was glowing with these colors of the sunset. And it was just such a beautiful scene. And I remember there kind of being a slight breeze coming off the lake. And there was just no one around. It maybe was Sunday night. And the weekend crowds were gone. And I felt really isolated there. And I was sprawled out on the granite slabs And I took off my shoes and I was watching the sun fade. And all of the sudden, I could hear footsteps coming up behind me. And I turned around and I saw Carl and he was walking fast. He's walking like he's in a hurry, maybe angry at something or someone or he's angry at me. And I didn't move. He just stomped up to me and he stood there above me at my feet. And he looks at me and he says angrily, you are the most boring person in the whole world. I've been watching you all summer long. I've been camping on that ledge for weeks, just watching you to see what you were going to do. And you haven't done anything. (laughs) And he was so mad. He had like spit coming out of his mouth. 
and and I didn't respond. He just shook his head and he threw his hands up in the air and then he stomped off. And I literally froze. I, I just can't believe it. I just, I can't believe that at that moment I froze. I, I could not move. I couldn't even talk. My heart was pounding in my throat. I was so scared. I didn't know what he was doing or what he wanted with me. And later in my life, after I became a prosecutor of sexual assault crimes, I would learn that this freeze response is a typical response in victims when they experience trauma and they just freeze. And I could relate to that in my later job because it happened to me. I did that. I froze. I froze when Carl stood there yelling at me. I just remember feeling like I didn't dare move and I really couldn't even move if I wanted to. And so after Carl stormed off, the sun went down and I was left there in the dark. And like I avoided my tent that night. I left it set up. I left my tent set up because I thought if he would come back, he would surely look for me in my tent. And so I took my sleeping bag and I took it way up high, kind of above the area where he said he had been camping to watch me. And I took my shovel and I took my radio And just like I was on the very first night when I was solo camping, I was scared to death. I was laying on that ledge and I started putting it all together. All the different times I had seen Carl in the backcountry. The first time I had met him, which was just a brief encounter of like 20 minutes. And then all the subsequent times I had met Carl on the trail, in different areas in the wilderness. I just thought it was coincidence. And then how he had shown up at my house and then the missing underwear. It took this one encounter for him to confront me to realize really what was going on here. And I was just clueless. I was just had been clueless to what Carl was doing up to that point. And I'm not really sure exactly what Carl had expected to see me doing there at my favorite backpacking site at Lake Aloha. Um, You know, he said I was really boring and he'd been watching me for weeks. And I'm not sure what he expected me to do. Did he think I was going to be skinny dipping every night or having boyfriends or girlfriends over and we would be doing something? I don't know. (laughs) I'm not really sure what he thought I would be doing back there or why I was even worthy to watch for several weeks on end or all summer long. Um, I just couldn't figure that out because I was a boring person. I literally backpacked all day long or went hiking and then I'd come home and eat dinner and I would never even make it to Hiker Midnight till nine, which is kind of my nickname, Hiker Midnight. And uh, that's pretty much how I got my nickname, Hiker Midnight, because I can't stay up past nine because I pretty much trash myself during the day and I eat dinner and I go to bed right as the sun is setting. So yeah, I I am a boring person when it comes to the wilderness. So um, that that really was flabbergasting to me. I just couldn't understand why he was watching me. But now what? I mean, I had another month or two left in the season 
to be a ranger, which means I would have to be backpacking alone for those two months. Um, part of me just wanted to hike out that night in the dark, turn in my uniform and just never come back. And then another part of me, I was pretty mad. I was mad that Carl messed up my dream job because remember, this was my dream job. And I just remember sitting there that night on the ledge, looking at the stars, trying to decide what I was going to do. I thought it through and I decided that like Carl's parting words was kind of an indication to me that he was never going to come back to this area again, that he was done with me. He said I was boring. He stomped off. He, he seemed to, to be done with me. So I stayed there. I stayed, I stayed that night and I stayed the next week and I stayed the rest of the season. And I walked carefully through the backcountry, just constantly looking over my shoulder for Carl. I was paranoid about running into Carl again. Two or three weeks after this happened, I was picking up garbage out of a fire ring. And I looked over and there was Carl standing on the trail. He was about a hundred feet away from me, just staring at me. And he didn't say anything. And I didn't say anything back. And I scanned the scene there and I saw a couple sitting on a rock filtering water and I dashed to them. I bolted to this couple and I walked over to them and I checked their permit and I talked to them about what their plans were for the day. And they were just day hikers. And I talked to them for a really long time and Carl disappeared. I didn't tell them why I was standing there talking to them for 45 minutes. I didn't let on my fear. And in fact, I never told anyone what happened with Carl. And the reason why I think is because I was the one with the badge and I was the one with the uniform on. I'm usually the person that people would tell about incidences like this. Who was I going to tell? So I, I just kept it to myself. And then how would I express this, that this man happened to be out on public lands where, where anybody can be? He was day hiking and enjoying the wilderness like anyone else. I mean, I, I thought he had the right to be there just as anybody else would. Um, but now I know that was wrong because he was actually harassing me in the backcountry. That was the last time that I saw Carl. And I came back the next season and the season after that and probably five more seasons after that year when Carl stalked me all summer. And all those years I looked for Carl, though, everywhere I went. I would, I would be backpacking and I would be looking behind trees. I would look up on ledges. I would assess everybody around me. I would make sure that I felt good about all the people that were camped nearby. Um, but the way I got over it was I decided that I was ready for Carl. And in my mind, if I saw Carl again, I was going to take him down. I, I sized him up and I felt like if Carl was wanting to come after me, I was ready for him. 
I think I was, I was mad. I was really mad that Carl was interfering with what I thought was my dream job. I wanted to be a wilderness ranger more than anything. I would ski patrol all winter. I would come back to the forest service and patrol the backcountry. To me, it was a perfect match, that job. And yet here Carl interjected himself in my dream, my dream life, my dream job, all my goals. And I was really furious when it was all over and said and done. And as I thought about it on ski patrol, I became more emboldened um, to go back because, like I said, I was just had it in my mind that if I saw Carl one more time, I was going to basically kick his ass. <laughs> and I know I'm not a very big person. I'm five feet two. And at that time, I weighed maybe 115 pounds. I was a really small person. But Carl wasn't that big either. And I just had it in my mind that next time I'm not going to freeze. I'm actually going to act and, and take him out. <laughs> and I was just ready for it. I was ready for it mentally and physically. And I was really, really angry. And part of making sure that I was able to continue on and do these things that I love was conquering Carl out in the wilderness, even if it was kind of this fictitious figure at this point, because I never saw him again. And it just went by with years and years of me feeling this way and partially scared, but also partially ready to fight. And until the last season, I finally forgot about Carl. And there was some point when I was walking around the wilderness halfway through, I was camping at my favorite lake, Lake Aloha, on that very ledge where Carl had confronted me and I remembered that I hadn't been thinking about Carl and all season long. And at that moment, I, I finally knew it was time to move on. And that was my last season as a wilderness ranger. I don't think it consciously sought out being a prosecutor for violent crimes and especially sexual assault crimes with the idea that Carl had kind of harassed me. But I know it came into play because when I would deal with these victims over time, I understood how they could freeze in the middle of an assault. I totally understood where these victims were coming from when they when they said that they were being raped or beat up or something, and they literally could not move because here I was, a ranger. I was an authority in the wilderness with a badge and a uniform, and I had all my years of Detroit under my belt where I thought I was pretty tough, and this man confronted me and it was such a surprise to me that I literally could not move. Um, and I just really could understand how that could happen to pretty much anybody then. You know, I went on in my life and continued to solo hike. I did the John Muir Trail completely solo. I shunned all 
opportunities for a trail family on that because I really wanted to spend every single night by myself. Um, and I went on, of course, and did the several seasons in a row after Carl had confronted me. I think I put in five more seasons of solo backpacking. I think for anybody who is going solo backpacking and maybe they're finding a barrier to doing it, I, I would say that this encounter is so highly unusual. Um, you got to remember, I patrolled that wilderness for about seven summers, and I am the only person I know of that had anything like this happen to them. I never had a report of any kind of assault back there. Every single person I met back there was friendly and welcoming and made me feel comfortable. I would say if you're going to go solo hiking and you want to break into solo hiking or you feel like none of your friends are going to go backpacking with you and so by necessity you need to be solo backpacking or hiking, what you need to do is just be prepared. So you need to look online and see, you know, um, what kind of animals live in that area. You can look online and see, is this an area that is easily accessible by car? I know for a fact that when I'm solo hiking, even today, or backpacking, um, I feel more vulnerable when I'm near a trailhead. And the further I get from the trailhead, the farther I go into the backcountry, the more secure I feel because I feel like it's such an effort to get back there that people are generally too tired to hassle with you. I always kind of assess the situation and trust my gut instinct when I'm out in the wilderness. I look and see who's camping where. I'm always aware of who's on the trail, where the other camps are, who's camping at these camps. Um, you know, if I see a campsite with a bunch of families, I feel pretty good about camping near them. If I see a campsite with some shady characters, I tend to then go camp away from the trail or away from these uh, spots where there are uh, more people and I'll go camp by myself because I'll feel more secure where people can't find me. You know, solo backpacking is the ultimate experience. It's like a meditation experience. It's like walking meditation where you finally have time and energy to just think about yourself and to experience the wilderness in solitude. You can be walking down a trail without any distractions except for those that are going on in your own mind. And so there's this magic to solo backpacking. And I discovered that as a ranger and I continue to use it through my life, you know, I still look to solo backpacking as this really cathartic um, backcountry event that I go to to kind of go and heal myself from or sort out issues that I might have. And it's really a worthwhile thing to do if, if you feel like you can do it.
Thanks, Mary, for coming on the show. And thank you, by the way, for all the work you do to help me be able to host this show successfully. It's really appreciated. I love how this incident that Mary had didn't stop her from solo backpacking and only made her stronger so that she can do all the kick-ass stuff that she's doing today. If you want to learn more about Mary, you can follow her on Instagram at her page, hiker underscore midnight. You can also check out the team page on GaiaGPS.com, or you can view her guide profile on Andrew Skirka's website. We actually uh, gave a link to Andrew Skirka's website on our third episode of the Out and Back podcast, if you want to check that out. Next week, both Mary and myself will be interviewing Fidget and Neon, two long-distance hikers who have been on a five-year adventure, working their way north from Tierra del Fuego at the very bottom of South America. They've dubbed their journey Her Odyssey, and their mission is a human-powered traverse of the Americas and connecting the stories of the land and its inhabitants. Fidget and Neon have hiked, biked, and paddled their way through Patagonia, Peru, Colombia, Mexico, and the United States. And they're going to continue heading north as soon as COVID subsides and the Canadian border opens up, with the ultimate goal of finishing at the northernmost point on the continent as they possibly can. In this episode, Fidget and Neon are going to tell us about how they travel through the wilderness in foreign countries, their incredible and heartwarming experiences with the local people, and some tips that you can take for treading lightly through other cultures. We also hear about their travel safety plans and how their contrasting personalities serve their expedition mission in different ways. You're not going to want to miss this episode if you want to learn some tips about getting off the beaten path in South America. Before you go, don't forget your discount at GaiaGPS.com podcast. Also, if you like our show and you want to hear more story format episodes like the one we just had with Mary, make sure to leave us a review letting us know on Apple Podcasts so we can bring you more of what you want we aim to please it's what we do here (laughs) so until next week this is shanty and we'll see you next time on the out and back podcast presented by gaia gps take care everyone